my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. iHeartRadio presents Podversations, a weekly discussion with the biggest names and influencers in podcasting. Want to learn the secret psych-up ritual scrub stars Zach Braff and Donald Faison use before every fake doctor's real friends taping? How Vice News parachutes into war zones to rescue journalists from life-threatening situations? Or why Keegan-Michael Key and Blumhouse believe 3D audio is the future of storytelling? Whether you're a newbie trying to break into the podcast game or an exec trying to refine your playbook, Podversations is the easiest way to keep your pulse on the industry. Hey, everybody, and thanks so much for hanging out with us again for another awesome session of the iHeart Podcast Network Speaker Series. This is probably my favorite part of the week where I get to stop down for half hour and talk to a couple creators that we have gotten into business with, that we're making content with, and that we also just really admire their work in podcasting, but way beyond podcasting too. We've had incredible conversations in this series as the podcast medium just continues to explode. We're at about 120 million Americans a month now listening to podcasts. And a lot of that's being driven by the creators who are jumping into the medium. Today's guests are sort of phenomenal. It's one of these sessions where we could probably spend a half an hour just talking about the stuff you guys have done and then never get to any questions. That might actually be interesting, but let's not do that. Let me just first just say, Michael, Jacob, thank you guys so much for being here today to talk to me for a half hour or so. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
So I'll do a little bit. Um, Michael Lewis, from the podcast world, you have an incredible show called Against the Rules. It's sort of a co-production with Pushkin Industries, which of course is the incredible podcast network from Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg that we have a big relationship with at iHeartMedia. We co-produce a bunch of stuff with those guys and distribute and sell all their shows too. Against the Rules is one of the best podcasts in the world for my money. You have also written, I think, for up to 18 books, Moneyball, The Big Short. You also live, I think, in Berkeley? Yes, that's I what you up, see behind me. I grew up in Berkeley, so we will always have that, no matter how the next half hour goes. Never lose sight of that. So Jacob Goldstein, you have a podcast that when I think about shows that are out there in the world of podcasting, there are a few for me that are really seminal, canonical podcasts that I think really made this medium different than it was before those shows came along. For us, that's a show that we put out there called Stuff You Should Know, for example, that we've been putting out there for a long time. Another one of those is Planet Money, that you're the co-host of. You have done a lot more than just this podcast, but I think this podcast has been really important in the way that it's moved podcasting further, but also just made money, the economy, especially at a hard time when this show really took flight. It made it more understandable and accessible to a bunch of people who I don't think clearly understood it maybe before listening to the show. So that's a little bit of the background and to give our viewers and listeners a sense of who we're talking to today. I want to go back and sometimes I think the most interesting parts of these conversations are in fact where people came from, their origin stories, what got them on these tracks. And I'll start with you, Michael, if you don't mind. You've written a decent amount about a high school baseball coach you had named Billy Fitzgerald. And one of the things you've said is that you might not have been a writer if it wasn't for Mr. Fitzgerald. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Was that some kind of a spark early? I did not expect you to go there right away. <laughs> but yes, yes. So let's do in a nutshell the, what was so interesting in the beginning to me about Billy Fitzgerald. When I wrote that, the first story about him, and then we did a podcast about him. He was in the process of being run out of the school that I went to, the Isidore Newman School in New Orleans, Louisiana, maybe most famous for graduating the Manning brothers, the quarterback, who he coached. And he was being run out because a handful of parents basically thought he was too tough on their kids or that their kid wasn't playing second base or shortstop when they thought their kid should be playing second base or shortstop. And at the same time, at exactly the same time, the parents of former players and former players were raising the money to name the school gym for him. So there was this thing, like, how can these both be true? It turned out that the minute you, that you kind of raised the subject with the former parents, they'd say, he shaped my child. He sort of did the hard work. And we, that the school was not going to let him continue to do that, I thought, said a lot about the culture. But he did it with me. It was like he orchestrated dramas in my 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 year old brain and kind of taught me a narrative about myself, which is the narrative that gets me through books. And the narrative is I'm a person who can do hard things. That I'm a, I'm a person who can overcome obstacles. I'm a person who can get knocked down and get back up. You set me off on him and I could, I could talk the next 30 minutes about it. But I, will, I just want to say that it's kind of funny how the subject even came up in the first place. I was out to drinks with my then editor at the New York Times Magazine, who was trying to talk to me about what the next like cover piece was going to be. Mm. And at the time, he was trying to get me to go write about someone important. Like you see, at the time, it was like Bill Clinton, or I don't know, you know, it was like some famous person. 
And I said, you know, if you ask me who actually the most important person in my life was other than my parents, it was this coach. And some other people would say this, a teacher. And I think there are these characters in the world who don't have high status, would have enormous importance. And I thought he was an, an example of that. And I think he's resonated as a character with people because they hear in their own lives a similar sort of thing. They think back and think, who was actually important? It wasn't someone you think of as important, but they changed my life. And I really do think that the kind of risk-taking that was required for me to become a writer, I just don't think I'd have been capable of it if I had not encountered him young and built, you know, however contrived, a story about myself that enabled me to get through tough stuff. It's funny, I was at a, uh, Katie Couric is on a book tour. I went to her show last night one of her guests was Ina Garten, who's the big chef. And it resonates that what you, that story you just told, Ina said, you know, it's funny in life, you don't need a bunch of people on your team. You just need exactly one person to believe in you. For her, it's her husband that she claims is really the reason why she was able to punch through walls and do stuff that she didn't think she could do. So it's interesting. I mean, Jacob, when you hear that story, is there a Mr. Fitzgerald in your past too that you can point to really clearly and say, it was my dad, it was an uncle, it was a friend, that everything kind of was the before and after of when I met that person. Is there a clear one for you? I mean, you know, there's a person I was thinking of, Michael, when you were talking about that was my aunt. I mean, my parents too were a huge influence on me, but professionally, there is this moment in my professional life that I was thinking back to it was 2008, right? It was like the financial crisis. And I was already a reporter at that time, but I had never studied economics or finance. And in fact, you know, my parents were like kind of, they weren't hippies, but they were like kind of hippie adjacent, you know, center left. And so I was raised with this sort of wariness of money, right? Like you want to have enough money, but that like being too interested in money in my house was sort of like, frowned upon, right? Like it was like, no, we don't want to be greedy. We don't like money. We just, whatever. Let's not think about that. And so the financial crisis is happening and I don't work at Planet Money yet at that time. And I don't know that much about money. And I was out to dinner with my aunt and my aunt was pretty into money. My aunt went and got her MBA and was like this hard charging New York executive. And so she was like my person to talk with about money. She'd also been like a poet and an English major and like poet and English major that I knew that was like my way in. Right. So we're out to dinner at this fancy New York restaurant because that's her style. And I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Right. And I had this sort of dumb question, which was, you know, this is whatever, October, November, 2008. And the real estate market has fallen and the stock market has fallen. And I have this sense that there's like hundreds of billions of dollars have sort of disappeared, right? You know, when like the stock market goes down, they're like, the money is gone. And so I said to my aunt, like, all that money, where did it go? Like, what, what happened to it? And she said, you know, the truth is it wasn't really there in the first place. She said, like, money is just fiction. It's just like, it's all kind of made up, you know? And this is not like the hippie view. This is the like inside smart money view is money is fiction. And so that was like a really exciting moment to me. That was like, this isn't about greed or about some kind of morality tale. It's this weird, interesting world. And that kind of set me on this path to studying and reporting on money finance. You know, what's interesting about that to me is when I go back in my career and look at where stories actually came from or ideas for stories actually came from to me, 
not what I, where I say they came from after the book comes out, but where they actually came from. It's that kind of thing. It, I mean, it, it is the most incidental encounter or it's uh, your cousin says something to you and you go, huh, you know, yes, actually, that's something I'll spend the next year of my life doing. It's always surprising where these things come from. And I don't know about you, Jacob, but I find that like when I'm at my best as a writer or as a podcaster, when I'm at my best as a kind of searcher for stories, I'm just open to stuff coming in from anywhere. I'm like I'm listening to everybody, not just the people you're supposed to listen to. So it's kind of not respectable for Planet Money to be launched on the back of your aunt, but it's great. Well, what's that line from E.B. White in his essay about New York? Anyone, anyone who wants to live in New York has to be willing to be lucky. Right. That's kind of what you're talking about. Like, it always feels like a stroke of luck. And I'm always afraid that I'm not going to find another story. Right. For that reason, it's like, I don't know how to find another story. Like, (laughs) you know, yeah, that's true. You make it sound really easy, but also really stressful and not easy. All It's terrible. It's so hard. And I don't know how to do it still. You know, I've been doing it for 20 years and I still like, I don't know. But like, maybe there's something to where you guys kind of came from, not the Mr. Fitzgeralds of the story, but maybe Michael, you, I think, studied art history at Princeton. And after that, decided to, at some point, whether it was sort of a intentional decision or just, oh, maybe I'll try this now, you pivoted. Why that pivot? What did you retain from art history that you're like, you know what, I still use this piece every single day? Well, maybe talk there is about a, There's that. an answer to that question. I don't know about Jacob, what Jacob's career is like, but my early career is really odd. I didn't write for school newspapers. I had no notion of myself like as a writer when I was a kid. English teachers did not encourage me to write. In fact, they kind of grimaced when I'd hand my papers and they'd come <laughs> back all marked up. There was no like, oh, he's going to be a writer. And it actually freaks One of my favorite questions when I get back together with like an old high school friend is like, are you freaked out that I'm doing this? Sean Toohey, the hero of The Blind Side, the the guy that Tim McGraw played in the movie. I had not seen him for 25 years when he picked me up at the Memphis airport and led me to that story. The first thing he says that comes out of his mouth when he picks me up, he says, who writes your books? (laughs) I said, I write my books. And he says, no, no, no. He says, I know you're really good on TV. Like you're really good at marketing. I I know your name's on them and you like the seller of the things, but who actually puts the words down? And I said, I actually put the words down. And he says, no, you don't. You're just like me who sat in the back of the English class and got D's. People cannot believe this happened. And so flash forward to my senior year in college and I had to write a thesis. It, It was for the art history department. And a thesis was basically a short book. And I became so engrossed with the process I thought, hmm, I must want to be an art historian. The teacher, the professor who was my advisor said, you don't want to become an art historian. They're not, you, there's not going to be art historians. There are no jobs. And so the next thought I had was like, well, maybe what I want to be is a writer. Like, maybe that's what I got out of that. The same advisor, when I was defending my thesis, I tried to get him to compliment the writing. I said, like, what, so what'd you think of the writing? And he said, he said, put it this way, never try to make a living at it. So I didn't, I mean, you're talking to someone who had no encouragement It wasn't like, oh, you should go do this. But I thought I was so engrossed when I sat down with something, especially immersed myself in something, that I wanted to just do that over and over. So I just started doing it without anybody asking me to. And, you know, they're submitting things to magazines and getting rejected by the magazines until finally someone said, hey, I'll tell you the breakthrough moment, then I'll shut up. The breakthrough moment was there was a little ad in the back of The Economist magazine that I saw. And it said, anybody who wants to work for The Economist for the summer, submit a piece on anything having to do with science and technology that's 600 words or shorter and will consider you for employment. So I wrote this piece. I get a call 
I get brought into their London offices. I'm told that I'm by the guys who are interviewing me, Matt Ridley interviewed me, Matt Ridley. The, and he sat me down. He said, tell us about yourself. And I told him art history major, like my science background was I, I got through Princeton science requirement by taking a course called physics for poets, which I flunked. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it is all true. He looked at me, he said, there are three people on the shortlist for this job and you're one of them. And the other two are studying for physics PhDs, one at Cambridge and one at Oxford. He said, you're a fraud. He said, you're a really good fraud. And that's a journalist. And he said, he said, keep writing for us. We're not going to give you any job. He said, but keep writing for us. And I, so I, I started that way. I published a dozen little pieces in The Economist. And then one thing led to another and the pieces got longer and then they became a book and then I had a career. What was your uh, art history thesis on? I've got a copy right behind me. If you would like, I'll get it and I'll read you some. <laughs> it was a great subject if you're interested in the thing. It was on the Florentine sculptor Donatello yeah. and the way he used Greek and Roman sources. They were digging this stuff out of the ground. And the question was like really what the early Renaissance artists thought they were doing. They didn't think of themselves as the Renaissance. They were doing something else. Their story, it was like the story about where stories come from. The story of the Renaissance gets polished over time. But in the beginning, he's just digging stuff up or they're digging stuff up and saying, wow, that's cool. You can do that. And I was showing that. And it was in its own little way original, interesting mainly to me, but it was the doing of it. It was like, I was totally engrossed. And I wanted that feeling of being totally engrossed in what I did. And that's what led me to the career. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jacob, your earlier work was, uh, some of it anyway, was a staff writer at places like the Miami Herald, Wall Street Journal. What did you learn as a staff writer that you for better or for worse, can't unlearn. I mean, I got good at cranking things out, right? When you have a job like that, you just go to work and write a story every day. And then it comes out in the paper and you hope you didn't screw anything up. And the next day you write another story and another story. And so you can't worry too much about any one story when you got to write a story every day. And that has pros and cons, but on balance, I've, I've found it really helpful, right? I mean, Obviously, reporters have huge egos, but you have to at least a little bit take your ego out. You know, it's not like every story is like, oh, I'm going to polish this and put it on the shelf forever. It's like nobody's going to nobody's going to care about it in another day and you got to do another story. So that feeling of just going to work and making things every day, I really value. And and still to this day, I find it useful. What about before you had that dinner with your aunt? What did you think money was? Well, that's a fun question. I mean, you know, when I think back to the way I thought about money, my response to it is much more or was much more emotional, right? I think, as with many people, right, our response to money is much more emotional than analytical. And I think of myself as a relatively analytical and not that emotional person, but uh, money is weird, right? Money is a weird one. So for a lot of people, it's, I want it. For me, I had a, a response of like, I don't want to want it too much. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, like I, you know, I was like, whatever. I lived in Montana and like spent a lot of time in the woods and was into not needing money, but almost to the point of obsession. Like a friend of mine who was my roommate in my 20s was like the other day was like, why did you sleep in a sleeping bag? from like age 20 to 25. And I was like, I don't know, I guess I didn't want to buy a blanket or I didn't know if I was going to go somewhere. So I had a strange, like, don't spend any money. Money is a trap. That was my thing with money until then. And do you feel like, I don't want to put this on you. Maybe like, no, not at, on me. I'm not here at, for it. <laughs> it's not at all the goal. But is some of this like, I need to teach all of you people about the things that money is and money is not because you just need to know this in, in 2021 and 2022. Like, is there a part of the demystifying as a mission statement that goes into every day? I mean, you know what a lot of it is for me is, this thing, money, finance, even now more generally business tech is so often loaded with morality, yeah. right? Either money is bad, tech is bad, or from the other side, like, oh, these tech CEOs are like, you know, as gods unto us. And like, you can set all that aside and say, it's interesting, right? Like, 
that's the core thing for me. And in this new show I'm launching in a planet money, it's like, yes, there are lots of moral things going on, but it's just interesting. And so the way we can look at physics or history or whatever, like there are these complicated human technical systems and stories that are just interesting. And so that is the core thing that motivates me and that excites me. How do you know, back to you, Michael, for a sec, I mean, I get that Mr. Fitzgerald sort of sparked something in you. I get that we need to have, as you guys, as, as sort of creators, writers, need to have radars wide open to pick things up that you might miss otherwise. And that's how it's this mixture of like, I'm lucky because I was open, but I also know what to pick as the topic that I'm going to work on for one, three, 10 years I mean, how does that process happen? How do you know, like, this is a Michael Lewis book. This is the topic of my next thing. This is what I'm going to do for the next several years. Like Moneyball, incredible book, incredible movie, like became this huge thing out there in the world. When did you know, yep, this is the one? That's a really great question, like how you decide what you're interested in. And I don't think I decide. And I bet most people don't decide exactly. I think the trick is not to worry too much about what you should be interested in and actually respond to what interests you and worry about the why of it later. Money was a good example of how the books often happen. They usually start with some question, some yeah. sometimes very small question. And, and then you all of a sudden you've pulled the thread on the sweater that ends up unraveling the entire garment. The actual beginning of this is lost, actually, in the book. Never. The actual beginning was when free agency happened in baseball and the sal and sports and the salaries start going crazy. You think they can't get crazier and they get crazier and crazier. I was in London for a bunch of it. I come back here. I'm now living in the United States, paying, starting to pay attention to sports again. And I notice all of a sudden on my television set, the, on the Oakland A's team, like the left fielder is being paid $7 million and the right fielder is being paid 150 grand. And I think... I wonder how pissed off the right fielder is when like the left fielder drops a fly ball. Is there class warfare resentment inside of a baseball team because these great gaps between what the players are paid? So I, start, I was watching the games for that, like looking for like angry expressions, <laughs> like I was looking for like signs of resentment. Then I realized at some, at some point that, no, no, it's not the players. It's, not, it's between the teams that the A's are spending a fifth of what the Yankees are spending. And oh, they're winning as many games. How could they be doing that? And that's just percolating, right? For maybe a year. And then I just ended up on stage being interviewed by the former GM of the Oakland A's. And I asked him the question backstage. And he said, that's a very good question. There's a guy running the team named Billy Bean, who I'm sure would love to talk to you about it. And now this is where it gets interesting when you find stories. So I was just thinking, I was thinking I was gonna write a little magazine piece, a short magazine piece. I went to go see Billy Bean. They were then in spring training in what, 2002. In an hour, I knew I had something bigger because he said, nobody's asked, nobody asked me about this, about the money thing, like how we find in players cheap and, and how we're looking for essentially arbitrage opportunities in the market for baseball players. He said, but that's how I spend my every waking hour thinking about this. So when I knew I had a book, I spent, like took maybe two months and I remember the moment I had a book. I was interviewing the players about the weird things the management was doing. They were very unconventional. They didn't understand why Jeremy Jambi was leading off and why so-and-so was playing first. They didn't understand the moves. The and I wanted to see it kind of like, it was sort of like, did the lab rats understand the experiment? And I was sitting in the Oakland A's clubhouse after a game, waiting for a player to come back from the showers. And I was watching the players come out of the showers. And it was the first time I saw them naked. 
and they were appalling to look at. It was like they were fat, misshapen. One guy had two club feet. I, I just thought, like, if you line those naked bodies up against the wall and asked anyone, anyone what they did for a living, no one would guess professional athletes. That night, I mentioned that to the number two guy in the front office, Paul DePodesta. And he said, well, that's true. Our players don't look good. And, and there's a reason. Because if they look right, if they look good, the market values them properly. It's one of the ways, the reasons the market misvalues the players is they're not looking at the data, they're looking at surface appearances. So we actually come to life when we see someone who's really appalling looking, who can play. At that moment, I thought, wow, this isn't, it isn't baseball. It's like everything. It's like if a baseball player can be misvalued because of the way he looks, who can't be misvalued because of the way they look? So this gets the, how do you know you have a story that's worth telling? But I feel like there's some really deep thing at, at play and I know I have the characters and the situations and the materials that like, stuff is going to be generated that will allow me to fill the pages and dra dramatize the nugget. And the nugget was that. It was like, hmm, markets don't value people properly. And it, for a whole bunch of reasons. And this has profound implications for all of us. And all the books have a story like that, where, they, where it starts really little. It doesn't come fully blown. Some stupid idea, like the left fielder's, the right fielder's pissed off at the left fielder. And they, no, that's not true. And you kind of crawfish your way through it. And all of a sudden, oh my goodness, this is, there is something here. It's just not what I thought was here. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
flip to you real quick. Does it surprise you that you're so well known as a podcaster? And second part of this question, why do you think podcasting is blowing up like this in the country? Why is it? It's the first mass reach new medium in a while. Two-parter. So the first things first, though, does it surprise you to be like, wow, this is really, this is really worked out? It does. You know, I feel like I sort of caught a lucky break in a weird way. I'm, you know, technological change has obviously been really hard on the kinds of places where I started my career, right? On the Miami Herald. But, but you know, I think I'm a better podcaster than I was newspaper reporter, right? It's hard to get a joke into the newspaper. And, you know, when I remember I got to Planet, or for that matter, into a traditional NPR story, right? Like I would have been a fine NPR reporter, but like undistinguished, right? I remember getting to Planet Money and being in an edit and, and we did at Planet Money, these big group edits and getting to a point in a script where somebody was like, wait, I think there's a joke there. I think we could make that funny. And it was like a ray of sunshine coming down. Like I'd come from places where they took your jokes out, right? The idea that we're going to put a joke in is like, I've found my people. So... Uh, that certainly, it was a lucky break, right? If I was 20 years older, that, that wouldn't have happened. It didn't exist or 10 years older. And I think that relates to the second part of your question, right? Like, why has it blown up? Well, because it's offered this incredible amount of new stuff, right? I mean, we could call it content, but new stuff to listen to and stuff that can be different, stuff that can be funny and smart, right? It used to be like, you could have like morning dumb funny radio or like, boring, smart NPR, but like you can have both. You can make one show that's funny and smart, like great. It sounds so revolutionary, but it really is that kind of kind of that simple. What about you, Michael? You have one of the best podcasts out there. Well, what's your take? There's this huge shift in the culture and it's driven by technologies. This, right? Everybody's got, it's like if you could carry the newspaper in your pocket. And I saw it first with my books the explosion in the audiobook market. When my first book came out, Liar's Poker basically didn't exist. You know, it was there, it was cassettes on tape, but no, you never heard anybody listening to your book. And now they're not quite as likely to listen to it as read it, but close. So much so that I now realize how I really have to attend to the audiobook side better than I have. I have to pay more attention to it. And so this is a shift in the culture because you get a different response from an audience when they're taking it in here rather than when they're taking it in here. It's a different emotional response. It's a more emotional response. It's a medium that really rewards, make them laugh, make them cry, much more so than this. And it's, but the drawback is harder to explain really complicated things. You know, you would not want to have to explain a collateralized debt obligation to hear Jacob's done it, but it's just like harder than on print. We live in an, it would seem like an emotional and unreasonable age. And I think this is part of it. I think that people are getting their stuff this way. And I think you get it this way. You respond differently. You respond more emotionally. So I don't know what Jacob feels about this, but when I'm thinking about against the rules, I'm thinking about the emotional pitch of the story. It can't just be interesting. It's got to be interesting and it's got to trigger some emotion. Jacob, go for it. I'm starting a new show and the show is called What's Your Problem? And it's launching next year and it's going to be great. And another one too, right? That's right around the corner with Pushkin called Hot Money. I think you're the EP on that one, correct? That's right. So on that one, we're working with the Financial Times, a couple of great reporters there who broke a big story about uh, internet pornography, basically. Like the biggest internet 
porn companies in the world are almost entirely opaque. They're privately held. And so they're digging into those companies to sort of figure out how the money works. And like this whole amazing history of pornography and the internet, which have sort of moved in lockstep for 25 years now. Awesome. So new season's coming in March of the What's Your Problem show, working title, and then the next one in June of Hot Money, a new season of Against the Rules, top of the year. Springish, I think, Michael, is what you guys are looking at with Pushkin. Yes, and a little, and a five-episode miniseries attached to the first full-length audiobook of Liar's Poker, which we just did. And Jacob's in, actually in one of the episodes. Then that drops in, I think, February. Michael, Jacob, I really, really appreciate the time you've uh, given me today to talk through this stuff. It's fascinating. It's awesome. You guys make some of the best content out there in podcasting, and it means a lot to me as a listener and as uh, I heart to partner with you guys and, and Pushkin on some of this stuff, however we can support. So really appreciate you hanging out today. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Everybody else who listened in, really appreciate you guys too, taking a half hour every week and listening to us. These are incredible shows, and they have a lot more coming at the top of next year. Podversations is a production of iHeartRadio. You can find more from the biggest names in podcasting on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.